please welcome my good friend and longtime friend, Sean Pelton. Hey, John, how's it going, man? It's great, brother. It's going great. Man, it's great to see you. It's so great to see you. Man, thanks so much for having me. Um, an honor to be here. And um, yeah, we go kind of way back now as the moons have passed. And stuff. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that because that, that was like one of the first things I was going to talk about. I, I just, you know, for everybody watching this live right now that might not know this, that we met, by my recollection, we met the summer of 1989. Does that sound right? You were you were on tour with John Eddy. That's right. That's right. Wow. Yep. Good memory. Yeah. And you were living in New York and you were, uh, well, Kenny Aronoff introduced us. Kenny was playing with Jefferson Airplane at, uh, at Great Woods, just outside of Boston. And he introduced me to his friend and you were kind of like a student or a former student of Kenny's or you studied with him. Yeah. Yeah. I was so lucky to uh, have been able to um, study with Kenny for, for a while there in Bloomington, you know, went to school in, in Bloomington and, uh, and that's where of course Mellencamp was based. Yeah. So that, that was a real lucky um, opportunity to be around him at that time. And amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was that was the beginning of, of, um, I know we, we stayed in touch after that. I, you know, I gave you my card and, uh, you either sent me a cassette of John Eddie, or maybe you gave it to me that night, but I just remember you were, you were like already working and doing a lot of stuff in New York. In fact, I found this photo. I think I sent this to you, uh, years ago, but, uh, I'm going to just hang on a second, Sean. I, I told you I'm new at this high tech stuff, but, um, this was 1990. Uh, do you remember this at Sam Ash? <laughs> I do. I do remember, man. Oh my God. That's incredible. Um, well, Marco and everybody, that's the drum, the drum store up on 48th street. Um, exactly. Yeah. Wow. That's really going back. I love it. I know, man. I know you, you were, you, you were hanging with us. We were at, it was we were there in town for the Zildjian day that we were doing at, at um, the Ritz or someplace in New York, I think. And uh, and Tristan Bowden is there and Kenny yeah. Aronoff and Marco, of course, is running Sam Ash and Mike Morris, who's the Zildjian West guy, Zildjian West Coast guy. Yeah. And 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 you came and hung. I think we were drinking grappa and getting into all kinds of trouble. As yeah. <laughs> Man, that was a great hang. It was a great hang, man. It yeah. was a great hang. So anyway, I mean, that was 30, 31 years ago. Crazy. And then I, you know, and and then I like a year later, 1992, 30 years ago, basically, you get the gig, you know, on Saturday night, playing for Saturday Night Live and 30 years, man. That's, oh, yeah. I know it's, I, I, you know, I, oh, this I feel so fortunate, uh, as we all know, like in this business, uh, any kind of steady gig or longevity situation is so hard to come by. And, um, ah, man, I, I count my blessings every time I walk into that studio, you know, on Saturday. Um, and it's been an amazing ride. I, I couldn't be luckier, you know, just well, you, so you very thankful, you know, very thankful. You know, I'm, when when we were on a couple of weeks ago, we had the whole group of guys. I, you know, Mickey Curry was saying how great you sound, how great the band sounds. 
and uh, and you know we we were honoring Charlie that day. But I, I wanted to mention that again that and Mickey and I were talking about that offline too. How how you're just killing it. I just I, I there have been so many guys that have sat in that that seat. You know, obviously Steve Jordan and and Matt Chamberlain and and Chris Parker and and yourself of course and but you you've like that band is just it's just like so well oiled now you know yeah right yeah i mean it's such a uh what an incredible chair that i mean the people that have played like you said uh steve jordan and then uh, steve ferroni did it for uh, a while oh, yeah. as well yeah. and um buddy williams buddy williams and, yeah uh, you know in the beginning i think there were some cats would come in and out like i think gad and different people weckle you know uh came in sub different times you know and um um, and it's just an incredible group of musicians, you know, because it's sort of uh, cats that are based in New York and that were sort of working in the studios and the tradition of that. And uh, when I first started in 92, GE was running the band and kind of got to get through an audition with uh, Matt, you know, Matt Chamberlain had done it for years, obviously such a great musician and yeah. uh, uh, decided to leave after a year. And so they had some auditions, uh, knew the bass player that was doing it. And, um, we had an audition over at SIR on 25th street here in New York. And, um, man, it was a wild audition. It was sort of just show up and G started playing. And, and then Paul, the bass player, Paul Solo was there. It was just the three of us and G just started playing and you just, uh, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> swim or drown, you know, so <laughs> You know, get down and whatever was happening. I mean, it was nothing like, "Hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do this." He would just start playing, and you just had yeah. to get down. You know, and um, I felt uh, the, the audition. I felt went really great because I'd been doing a lot of gigs that were sort of in that wheelhouse, like um, a lot of blues gigs, and then the the rock thing. And I think G wanted somebody that was sort of uh, hit hit kind of big, and but it was also uh, kind of simple and straight ahead in a in a feel that feel was a priority you know and then mm -hmm. also someone that maybe had a wide range that could cover a lot of bases you know and play brushes and you know if you had to swing a big band types chart you know and so kind of a broad range which was really fortunate how i came up then and all the different things i was exposed to really seemed yeah. to be a plus in that way you know at that point you know and uh now you know Lenny, uh there was a change made about three or four years into that. And Lenny Pickett started running the band and, yep. you know, just the, the musicianship on the band is, you know, Lenny from tower of power, Lenny Pickett and, and, you know, all this, he's played with so many incredible drummers, you know, like the Garibaldi, they used to be roommates, you know, and he has oh, this yeah, yeah. incredible stories about hanging with David and uh, being on the road and David practicing, maybe he had a practice pad that was the size of a quarter, you know, on his, <laughs> for you know precision and control type stuff and um so incredibly inspiring and really great band leader and, and just an incredible musician and uh james genius plays bass uh, yeah, yeah. he tours with herbie now and has played with everybody the record brothers and on and on and on and a lot of great jazz players in the horn section like steve Touré is trombonist and um you know these guys like you know steve he's won the downbeat pole with trombone for years after years and played with Blakey, you know, and just has oh, yeah, like incredibly yeah. inspiring our Blakey stories. You know, he can sit down and play a Blakey shuffle on, on the drums and talk about it. And his, oh man. You know, his stories about uh, being around Elvin and, and all this stuff is just a, uh, 
Ron Blake plays Barry, uh, and he played with Roy Haynes, you know, and then Alex oh, Foster. Yeah. Alex Foster runs the Mingus Big, big Band, and um, Pendarvis, Leon Pendarvis, the keyboard player, like came up with that generation, like Steve Gadd and all those guys. And uh, he's actually been on the band the longest, I think, since the early 80s. So some of the some of those horn players have been there since the mid 80s, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, wow, just it really inspiring to go in and hit with those cats, you know, it, it's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be. And, and just, yeah, I mean, the level of, of everybody on the bandstand is, it, it, yeah, it's, and it's, yeah. it's got to be like something that just makes you just want to play, just show up and, and work and do the best work you can do. It really is like that. Yeah. And, and yeah. like I said, the way Lenny runs the band is really, it's really cool how he does it, you know, um, it, it's almost like a, a great baseball team manager or something like that on, on a level where you have, you know, great musicians and then the way he, he kind of can steer it. And, um, but man, it is a thing where that the band hits, like when we show up at 11 in the morning, it's like, I think cause Lenny used to, they used to rehearse a lot with tower of power. So he's used to like, okay, we, you know, the clock starts at 11, we're going to do this. And, 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 you know, it's full out. No, it's not any, you know, coast. Yeah. Yeah. So it, man, it's, it's, it's a thrill. Absolutely. So you, so on the, on show days, you guys rehearse at 11. Yeah. And it's wild with this, this, uh, this COVID thing, because, um, you know, traditionally we've always started at 11 AM, but now we had to show up like an hour and a half early and go through the whole rapid test thing. And everybody has to go through it and oh, get yeah. checked, you know, and, uh, so the day starts even earlier. Like I had to get there at nine 30 and then you're, you're sort of there and there's breaks and there's different things, but you're sort of on call. And then we go live at 1130 at night and we're done by 1 AM. So it's kind of a long, long day. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. Man, that's, uh, you know, if we can back up for one second, Sean, I think, I think people, by the way, Jeremy Driesen says hello to you. I, oh, you know, he, yeah. Yeah. Jeremy's, Jeremy. buddy i hang out in the vineyard with jeremy um talking about like the audition i'd just be curious to because i never heard the story about how how you auditioned like when you said ge just it was just sort of like a jam session and were there a, a bunch of guys that was a, a sort of cattle call in new york like a bunch of guys auditioning for it or you know i think it was maybe i don't think it was more than five okay and, yeah. um so it wasn't a huge call at that point and um you know, he he had been playing with Bob Dylan at that point, uh, but you know he had played with a lot of people. He was with Hall and Oates, and she had done a lot of wide range of stuff. And you know, I think um, the way Bob does things live, you know, and then I had the chance to get to record with him a couple of times. It's so interesting. Like uh, he, it just happens, and you have to sort of be present to fall in with what's happening, you know? And so yeah. even when I had got the gig, uh, you know, we'd be live on air sometimes and G would be on camera and just start something. And, and he would, he would do this with his ear. He'd look back at me and do this to his ear. And that meant that he's just going to do some shit. You better fall in. <laughs> and then <laughs> he would give the horn players a key, you know, and, uh, but you know, it was exciting. It was a crazy way to go, you know? And, and I think yeah. he kind of got that, type aesthetic sort of from hanging out with Bob Dylan's thing for a while, you know, with, uh, yeah. Cause he tells stories about the guitarist. He said, said, sometimes if you see photos of Bob live, like 
the guitar players sometimes are at a 90 degree angle so they can see Bob's left hand to see what key maybe he's going to be in and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, without any discussion of, okay, we're doing Masters of War in this, you know, it was sort of just he would start, you know. So anyway, I think that he brought some of that to the, the thing and the audition was definitely like that. I mean, there were some charts too to like make sure that you could read and yeah. There were some charts that covered like some brush stuff and then like a, maybe like kind of a Count Basie thing. But a lot of it was really coming out of like a big, uh, you know, electric guitar blues. And then like the Stax tradition, you know, like um, even when G was running the band, like Lenny tenors playing, you know, and the sound of the band since the beginning is kind of coming out of a Junior Walker Motown retro you know 60s yeah. 70s funk thing and uh so there was a lot of stuff in that vein too and um but my head was you know i i felt just lucky because i had been playing gigs that were that were sort of blues based and it was all about feel and you know and it wasn't uh, a lot of craziness or busyness going on and i think he liked that that's kind of what he wanted in the band yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, you you got an unbelievable feel. You know, I, the show the other night, the, the whole season has been great. We, you know, we've been talking about this. We've been so everybody watching at home knows we were been trying to get this together for a while, and you've just been so busy. And so I so appreciate you doing this today, and and uh, especially after you know having a show the other night, and the 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 Dion Warwick um, portion of the show the other night, where where you know she came on. And uh, and you guys played just a little bit of what the world le needs now, kind of you know yeah. a little a little outro to it. Yeah. And I was you know just of course as a drummer I'm listening to you I'm just I'm like totally dialed into you and I'm just like man what a motherfucking feel you know what a great you know. Well, I mean I appreciate that so much and I I I'm I'm just all in on that part of the drum thing like I. I'm so intrigued and drawn to what is happening when somebody sits down behind a kit that can transcend the thing and just feel magical, you know, like, like, how is this happening? And, you know, what, what is going on, you know, and like, um, you know, every time I see Bernard Purdy play, I, I feel that. And it's yeah. just so inspiring. And, um, and all the great field players, you know, that, I look up to, I mean, the list is so huge and, and they're all my heroes, you know, but yeah, um, yeah. yeah there's, there's pretty, you know, um, I got a chance to play with Purdy together uh, on his 65th birthday party. And, um, you know, it was just a blast being around him and see him play. And every time he plays in New York that I can go, I just sit there and try to soak it up, you know, and it's just magic. It's just magic. Yeah. yeah. You know? But I, I just, I, I just, I just love that tradition of drumming that when somebody sits behind the set and it makes you want to move or dance or shake your ass and get up, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, and those, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's obvious to me that, you know, the guys that guys that inspired you, you know, when you're, when you were starting out as a drummer, like you were, you were listening to, you know, you were listening to, I'm guessing like Bernard and Levon Helm and these guys with, with all that, just, you know, uh, there's a picture of you and, and, um, Roger Hawkins too, that I'll share. I mean, like all that feel just for days. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, 
Well, you know, the this Roger thing, he came, we were playing at the 55 bar. Uh, this must have been in the early 2000s, I think. And he was down. And man, to, to, just to meet him and uh, got his signature on a symbol and stuff. And, um, you know, and then uh, a lot of that music we do at the, at the show is is Roger on some of that stuff or, you know, very influenced by Muscle Shoals and what that was all about. And and then I was just um, to, I'm on this new Aretha movie, you know, which was a deep dive into um, those that music that Roger did. Uh, it, it sort of focuses on that period of Muscle Shoals when she went down there. And, you know, to to it was such an honor to sort of play that music and and uh, try to give service to it and and oh um, yeah yeah and then yeah, you mentioned sure. you mentioned levon uh you know he had this whole scene up in woodstock the midnight ramble band yeah and um so many of us you know so he was so open and and had there were so many people that got to do it and uh i tell you that was like a church being around him and the joy that he he has and he's so inclusive and just positive and he just loved music and man that feel and the sound and so to get to play beside him too and then there'd be times where he'd go out and play the mandolin and then you could you know play behind him and stuff so this this see this shot here is from his funeral yeah and yeah. uh it was like a celebration after you know after he was buried and um a lot of drummers there steve jordan's on the left behind larry campbell yeah and um, so just that was up in Woodstock at his uh, at the after his funeral, and it was really a great moment, you know, with uh, everybody just celebrating his life, and you know, wow, what an inspiration, you know, so soulful, yeah. and you know, my family's from Arkansas, so it was uh, it was just so cool to be around, you know, have similar roots and and feel all that, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. And you can hear it. It just, it, it seeps through your playing to me. You know, I, I just, I hear all that, like that rootsy feel groovy music, but I, you know, I remember when, when you played the modern drummer festival in 2011, was it 10 years ago? Yeah. Or 10 or, I, you know, there was, I guess, you know, um, lucky enough, they asked it two times, I think it's 2003 and then in 2010. Oh, that's right. 2010. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's right. The, the, I remember that first time. Um, I, I was thinking the, the last time you played. Um, it, this is going to sound crazy, but I just remember uh, talking to you about this afterward too, because there were there were a couple of. I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember the exact songs, but there were a couple of tunes where, because it was Modern Drummer, it was the Drum Festival, where you kind of took a little solo, or you really sort of got to blow a little bit, which we don't hear you do a lot on the show, you know. Yeah. And and most of the records you play on are are you know, they're not records where you're going to come in and and you know and chops out you know but but man I remember sitting there listening to these single stroke rolls that were like insane like and I and I talked and I remember saying Sean man you got incredible hands you know chops you're like oh man well you know I, you know I, <laughs> you know you're so humble about it you're like uh, yeah. yeah they were like you know. Well, no, I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, I was a huge um, Tony Williams fan um, coming up and I, I went, when I went to school, I sort of went to, to do the jazz route, you know, yeah, in Bloomington there. And so, you know, I, I love all the jazz 
icons. And uh, I, Tony, you know, was uh, just cha- life changing uh, for so many of us, you know. And that single stroke roll thing he does. And then what's wild is when, uh, let's see if I had a mistake, but, you know, his grip at, in, when he started holding kind of back here and it was all single stroke orientated, you know, and he got this huge sound, you know, kind yeah, of when, yeah. when he started playing on the bigger drums from 70 onward stuff. And uh, anyway, so that was just like, I, I, I started to realize that that is kind of, you, you can get a big rock sound with that, that kind of approach too, you know, and then being around Kenny, cause he's such a physical presence and, you know, behind the drums and, you know, when Kenny was first starting with Mellencamp and before he became such an amazing, you know, icon recording wise, uh, you know, it was so amazing to be around him and see him work on his sound and his big sound, getting a yeah. big sound and projecting to like, you know, wanting to project to the back of Mike Master Square Garden, you know, and like that kind of presence at that time. And, you know, in the eighties was such a trip because direct, like the snare drum was almost the biggest thing in the mix, you know, like oh, in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, where I'm headed is Tony, you know, started just got that huge ass sound with those single strokes and his grip was sort of very, you know, uh, actually, I have a picture of Blakey. Oh, hold on. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's sort of a, this is like art, but like this left hand grip is really kind of like, you know, just very it's it's not it's not finger orientated. It's like, you know, big. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that was a he was an influence in that in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Just a big sound. And, and I you know, and and that's a great way to describe it, too, because you you got so much power. I remember like it, it was and that's that's what I think of with Tony is like you, you've got all this like, you know, Tony had all that finesse, but he had all that power too. you know, like like Billy Cobham with that just like muscular, really muscular kind of playing when he needed to pull that out. You know, it was. Well, and I, I think you just nailed it about when you need to pull that out. Like, it was so fascinating making the transition. Like when I moved to New York, um, you know, and if you're used to playing bigger spaces or if you're on a tour with like a shed outdoor thing and stuff like that, like the physicality of that or what might work there, like, you know, making that transition to, to play smaller rooms in New York, like something like the 55 bar or something yeah, like that, yeah, you know, yeah. and having the range to make it happen at so many different dynamic levels it's a huge skill to sort of that's important if you want to work a lot in a lot of different contexts you know because playing playing big like that isn't going to work everywhere and by the same token a light soft touch that might be appropriate in a smaller room some people may want a bigger presence from the you know but so yeah yeah. do you do you find that that principle like during sessions as well, like, you know, you go in to do a record and, and uh, you know, you might, I, I wouldn't, I would never think you're playing too big for a recording, but maybe they want you to play a little bigger or. No, that's a great question. And, you know, that can go a million different ways. It's so wild how records can come together in so many different ways. And man, there are times where I think, they want to feel a lot of energy and bigness from somebody, even if it maybe doesn't have to happen, you know? Yeah. And, and, and then 180 degrees from that, like 
they might really be completely bummed out with someone big. And, and, you know, and so to sort of read that radar wise and have a, have a sensibility about that is, you know, it has so much to do with working and working consistently is trying to read the tea, tea yeah. leaf, you know, about yeah. what's needed and what, what do they want? And, you know, if, if you hear someone talking and they need, feel like they need more energy and they equate that with more physical presence or that's not what they, they want. They want more energy, but like, you know, subtle or, I mean, yeah. so many ways. And then the other thing that's interesting about too, like in New York is that, um, let me see if I had, I, I, sometimes I, I put these little sticks together that are rods with uh, like little broomsticks. So like on one side, I can have kind of a tick tick and on the other side, it's a little fatter and warmer, but where I'm headed is, and if you muffle the drums down, you can kind of play with more physical presence and, but maybe it's not more, it's not louder, you know? I got you. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. interesting too. Like the whole, the whole dance of that. And, um, you know, with drums, like there's situations where they really want someone to come in and take charge, a drummer that will take charge. And there's other times where they don't want that at all. They want the person that can come in and fit within what's happening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so it's such a wide range that you have to, yeah, sensitive to, you know, but that's, but, but like you just said, I mean, that's where your expertise comes in to be able to kind of read the room and go, I need to just kind of be a fly on the wall and just kind of do what the producer or the, the artist is asking me to do, or, or as you say, kind of step up and go, well, maybe I need to play it more like this. Maybe this is what you're looking for. Right. I mean, right. I mean, it kind yeah. of, yeah, it's so interesting, man, about, you know, that line of, of, being just right and but been too much can be a distraction and then being a wallflower can be exactly what they don't want or maybe mm -hmm. it is what they want it's just so wild i mean these gigs like i've done it for a lot of years um the songwriters hall of fame which is this you know amazing gig where um it's kind of a an industry event for the publishing and songwriting community but they bring all the great artists in like you know stevie wonder and mccartney's done it and, so, you know, like when you were playing with Aerosmith and um, and it was and it was great. But like the I, the the idea was that uh, I think it was Sweet Emotion or something like that. And, you know, you've got like five seconds to make an impression to Steven Tyler and Joe Perry that you've got your shit together and that it's yeah. going to feel great and that you're going to blow the roof off the place in, you know, either by rocking or by being or whatever it takes, you know, but that you've got your shit together. It's so interesting with drums. Like when something's not right or doesn't feel right, like often it lands in the drummer's lap, you know, like, and so having sort of the strength to deal with that and uh, be sort of prepared, you know, like, like situations like that, like if you're sent the recording from the, the original recording, like, is that how they're doing it now? Or they're doing it a lot faster or just a little faster or actually slower, or they're doing an, an acoustic version or, you know, with like a broke down kid or like, there's so many things happening. And with like YouTube, you know, there's like um, a way to sort of stay on top of, or, or at least when you show up in those kind of high pressure situations, you know, like that maybe you've had a chance to check out what's out there, you know, because yeah. you never know which way it will land, you know? And uh, I think, 
you, I think Alan Dawson told me this. I was lucky enough to get to hang with him for a couple summers. You know, you only have, what is the phrase? Um, only have one chance to, to make a first impression or, you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah. And with drums, you know, it's like, it's really like that, man. If you're an artist and you step into a house band situation and if the drums aren't right or it doesn't feel right, I mean, it can be like, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I got to think, you're probably probably being humble about this because I'll, I would bet that you have so much like you've been able to develop an instinct where you can you can read it. I'm willing to bet you can read it pretty quickly, like when you go in and and just and just pick up some vibes on things that, you know, like you say, it helps when you get a recording in advance and you know if they're playing it like the record or they're playing it a little faster or slower. But but I'm guessing that you you work as much as you do because you can kind of go in like how Blaine used to do and kind of, you know, like read the room and go, okay, I I know what they're, this is where they're going with this. And, you know, that, that's, it's, it's yeah. hard. Yeah. I, no, I, I, you're right. I think there is a um, that kind of awareness and that kind of skill. And if you have that kind of sensitivity, you you can work a lot, you know, uh, or, yeah. or, you know, you'll be in situations where it will can lead to more work. But then I, I think it's also some pre-rolls to that, too. Like, you know, I don't ever show up to the Songwriters Hall of Fame unless I probably put in a lot of time checking out what's happening with like, you know, like it's, it's funny we did. Um, I think it was my Sharia Moore with Stevie Wonder or something one year. and. Uh, he shows up and we were sent a version that was uh, them doing it live, which I think was a little more pumped up and more muscular and kind of modern, you know? And so that's what we were kind of given. And I had checked out the other versions and stuff. And he goes, uh, so when we first played it, we played it like what we were given, you know, because that's yeah. what we do. And then he goes, uh, drummer, he goes, what's your name? I said, Sean. He goes, Hey, Sean. So he goes, I want you to do this, pick up a brush with your right hand. And a stick with your left hand, and then I want you to play kind of a bossa nova thing or something. And he sang the drums, you know, it was amazing, but it was oh. back to sort of what um, the original recording I think was more about. I, th I hope I have this song title right and stuff. But, you know, that's that's like an example of a story where, you know, if I had never checked out the original recording or something like that, that, you know, I would have been, or if I didn't have a pair of brushes next to, to you know, or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know. Imagine if you said to Stevie Wonder, oh, man, I don't have any brushes. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, no, well, that's, that's yeah. a, you know, it's all that preparation that we were talking about, how you, you know, you, and you said earlier, I want to jump backwards just because earlier you were talking about, like, the, the audition process with, with the SNL band and, and how important reading was to, to that gig. So, and I was going to ask that question, like, because I, I know you chart out a lot. I can see that you're, you know, I've seen pictures of of, of your kit and how you, you know, chart stuff out. And I didn't know if, if you do that yourself or if that's, that's really part of the whole process there, though, isn't it? Like, it is. Getting, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I, when you're freelancing, like often, you know, like say the Songwriter Hall of Fame thing or once uh, I had sub for Anton for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, um you know, now this situation, so that's like an overhead shot of the kid at SNL. And on the left, there's like a book, Saturday Night Live drum book. And, you know, the, the music at SNL is pretty specific because it's a five-piece horn section. Everything is written out and copied out. And um, 
you know, like, so for like Tower of Power songs, for instance, it's pretty involved and, you know, every 16th note is being articulated and stuff. Yeah. But often what I do is um, I'll, I'll go through and carve a chart up so that I don't have to be stuck in the paper. And the first thing I try to get to is like, what's the form of the song? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. intro, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, solo section. And man, I, I use colored markers and all sorts of different things. Uh, to make it as easy as possible for me to get past the chart and into just getting down and making this happen, you know? Yeah. And um, so it's funny, you know, I've subbed with, as far as these television situations, like over at Letterman, they kind of had some charts, but they didn't have an official drum book, you know, and Anton often made, you know, quick notes and was great at that. Um, I, I remember like spending a lot of time making my own charts for like, for instance, I think they used to do dude looks like a lady. The Aerosmith tune was for one example. And, you know, everybody kind of knows dude looks like and kind of, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll count it off. I'll play. But you know, it's like, (laughs) I think the bridge has an odd phrase and maybe there's a, you know, and there's breaks and different things and signatures. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, and I remember one subbing over there and, uh, Paul goes, and it was kind of a, it's kind of a hot seat to, to sub because, you know, it's such a working band and, and Anton's so great. And uh, they've just played together so long that, and when you come into a situation like that, you sort of want it to, you want to be seamless and, um, yeah, you know, make it feel like that they're not having to worry about a, a third wheel or something. And, um, he goes, man, the, the opening theme, we've made a slight adjustment and it's one beat shorter. And, <laughs> And so, and there's not a chart for it, you know, there's kind of like a horn chart that's, but it wasn't updated. And then it's like a weird, there's an odd bar in the middle of that theme back in the day. So it was a little bit tricky, you know, and then I said, oh, okay. Um, well, that's cool. But uh, where, where maybe is the beat uh, not gone, you know? <laughs> and then he's like, he goes, I'm not, I'm not sure somewhere in there, but you'll feel it or some shit, you know, and I'm like looking at Will, you know, trying, and, um, but I, I, you know, I was able to figure it out, but it's, I had spent like, you know, a great deal of time making my own chart for it, you know, and like, and how the phrasing went and sort of the horn figures. Cause you, when you showed up there, you weren't really given a drum chart, you know, and then on the Conan band, it was a similar thing there too. Like the horn section had charts, but the rhythm section really didn't. And you were just sort of, it was up to you to show up to make it happen. And however, you know, ones like my charts are, are different than how Kenny maybe does his charts. You know, like I, I have a system that's sort of, it's very form orientated. And then to the right of the form, I'll write down, you know, patterns or signature fills if they need to happen and things like that. And, yeah. um, and Kenny's, Kenny's thing is a little more literal in a cool way. Like you were actually getting a, a real chart, you know, and, uh, but it's kind of like whatever works for, you know, the person. And I, I, and it is though it's a big part of the process of these things when you get hired to show up where it's like you've got to knock out 25 tunes and you've yeah. got three hours to rehearse it and the artist has 10 minutes with the band you know and it's kind of like you can't be asking oh wait where's the bridge at or what the, oh the field changer on the bridge oh that's right okay i'll remember or you know that kind of shit you yeah, can't yeah no i you know you can't yeah. do that and get called back you won't get called back you know <laughs> That's no, that's great, man. That's that's I think that's huge for everybody to know that. And I I, I want to just shout out to a couple of folks watching that. Uh, first of all, my friend Chris Anzalone, 
great drummer here in Boston who I was studying with for a while last year and still off and on. And uh, so I want to say hi to him because we've talked about he was helping me learn to read and and reading charts and uh, talking about exactly what you're talking about, the importance of of at least getting like a roadmap to learn yeah. tunes. Yeah. And the roadmap yeah. thing, you know, it is really helpful. And that I will say that I remember when I was coming up and before I moved to New York, like there was this thing of like, oh, I'll never work in the studio unless I've sort of been, you know, can read the most complicated chart of the North Texas State Jazz Band in Denton, you know, and like there was always sort of this fear of like, and I, you know, there are times when you need to be able to, to read, no doubt about it. But if you have a way of navigating it and making sense of it, and, you know, I think the impo most important thing is having a great feel and being musical. And and uh, so, you know, I haven't run across heavy situations where, like, you know, it's the black page. And, and if you don't nail the black page, you, you know, and that happens every week, it's it's not yeah. that intense. Yeah. But there are a lot of times where drummers are handed things like just head charts or, or a piano chart or like things that aren't even official drum charts and just being able to, to navigate that and make sense of it and uh, get a bird's eye view of what the big picture is musically, you know, those kind of skills are great survival skills, you know, but like if somebody asked me if they needed to to read in 15, 16 and all sorts of odd times and, and articulate it on the drum kit, I mean, that would be great, but that, I don't know if that really comes up that much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense, yeah. Yep. No, that makes perfect sense. And, and like, so when you get called to do like a Cheryl Crow record, Cheryl Crow record, um, I'm guessing there's like a, maybe a demo that they play you. It's probably not a chart that they've given you, but you might make your own chart at that point. Once you hear the the form of the song. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I was just working on something today, you know, like my charts are sort of like legal pad. I don't know if it's easy to tell, but all oh, this yeah, is just yeah. the form. Like, does that say uh, intro and then a eight bars and so there's form and then you know i do little lines about sections and maybe i have i have signature fills i want to do or, you know so it's kind of very basic and open to then like if somebody says something i can kind of and i give myself a couple pages if it's long you know and i can write yeah. in details if people have feedback of things they want or if i if i do something that i love and want to do it again um so Right. So I get at a Cheryl thing, sometimes they play a demo for you, um, man. And sometimes the, the artist will just play it uh, on with their acoustic guitar and then you hear it. And, you know, there might be a thing like, oh, we we're thinking, you know, like a faces thing here or like this is more like a Beatles thing from Revolver or like this is like Soundgarden or, you know, and that's that's what's interesting about then how much exposure you've had to music, you know, and, and how big your ears are about. You know, if somebody says Billy Higgins or, or you know, you know, Earl Palmer and they, like the, these references musically and and with albums and styles and stuff like, you know, that is a great thing. If they say, you know, like um, how Blaine with with the Beach Boys, or, you know, and, yeah. Victor and, and all those references like um, that's really a critical I think can be a critical awareness for people that are working in the studios you know to have that kind of knowledge you know and, yeah and be up to date with it you know to know what is happening it's it's hard to stay on top of everything you know <laughs> no but yeah but that, again this is all great great stuff for people to know and understand that there's like you know like you're you're 
you know, to some degree, I don't want to say expected, but it's helpful to know the history of, of like where some, some songwriter might be influenced. So he's going to refer to, like you say, a Beach Boys tune and, and the way Hal played. I know like Max Weinberg talks about how um, in the olden days, like Springsteen didn't make a reference to like a, a, uh, you know, a Ronettes tune or something that Hal Blaine played on like a boom, 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 zap, you know, and Max, you know, he, he got his like, okay, yeah, you want that, that, that Hal Blaine lick, you know? And yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's interesting how that is a part of the whole communication thing with a lot of people. And they, they respond to the idea that you might have the same reference points that they do. And if they feel like that, maybe it's a blind spot, then, you know, it can be like, Oh shit, maybe we hired the wrong cat or, you know, that like that can start to happen. Yeah. It's interesting. So yeah. how, so talking about the studio, Sean, how much are you doing? Like that? I'm, t- I'm guessing that's your, where you record remotely. Yeah. Yeah. Your home yeah. studio. This yeah. is the, the scene here and man, it's really involved in New York, you know, really evolved to where uh, so many of the studios have just closed, you know, because of the changes yeah. in, in the whole streaming thing when that started and, and the kind of collapse of the major label system in some ways. But then the home studio revolution happened, you know, and I think a a lot of people are doing a lot of work, a lot of great work. And it's, you know, I think it's really liberating and amazing to see, you know, like say Billie Eilish to have all that success and and her and her brother have made that record in their bedroom, basically, you know, because when I moved to New York in the 80s, you know, it was sort of like if something wasn't done at the hit factory or at power station or, you know, if it didn't have that sort of pedigree, it was almost like it wasn't going to be considered even anything more than a demo in a way, you know? Yeah. And so I think it's really amazing the tools that are out there. And like, you know, this is a floated room in Manhattan and, and, and it doesn't have high ceilings. It's a post-war building, which means it doesn't have like a lot of cement between the floors and, and it's not perfect. But uh, as far as soundproofing, because it's so hard to get complete soundproofing, but man, it's amazing what you can get done in a closet these days. If you yeah. sort of, you know, if, and you can insin- insinuate a bigger space by using like convolution reverbs. And if you know how to sort of, you know, route, route your stuff into a room and then put some compression on it, you know, and then if you route it to like a, a reverb of a castle and, you know, all of a sudden it starts to sound like maybe what Zeppelin with a castle, you know, you know, I mean, I'm, yeah, yeah, no, but, but you, you I mean. get a, you, all of a sudden you get a big room sound. Yeah. Right. And you yeah. can be in a closet, you know, and make this happen with the tools that we have. And um, so, I mean, I've been lucky uh, to have like world-class engineers that live here in New York and they came over and helped me get up and running, you know, and all the stuff. And, I mean, I've been, I, there's been things that have been done at Avatar, you know, Power Station, which is now called Avatar. Yeah. And um, they went in and did a record and then they've, they've decided, oh, we want to change this arrangement. We need to go back and, and recut this, but we don't have uh, the money to go back into Avatar. And then, so we've, we've done the drums like here. And then with all the raw material and the tools that are available, you kind of can, in, you know, in context, the track you really can't tell what was, cut at the million dollar studio versus in a home studio these days, you know, if you have right people making it happen, you know, with the tools and stuff. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It is. Well, and, and I, I knew you had jumped on that, you know, a long time ago and I was, I was curious to see sort of how that ratio looks nowadays in terms of like how much you're doing at home 
and and uh, you know how much you're doing in a place like Avatar or one of the major studios. So it's it's you know like I know in LA it's the same thing. It's mostly you're doing it in your own studio now. Yeah, so yeah. it really is. Yeah, I'd say it's like shifted like. 80 20 you know or yeah. 90, it's been huge like um that aretha movie thing was done um in the old skyline space here in um 38th street in new york and that was kind of during the covid lockdown so that was a trip you know sort of recording um during the whole covid thing um yeah they only allow a certain number of people kind of in the tracking space and then this actual physical space is uh, the power station or avatar studio a and um you know, that's just one of the great, great rooms of the planet, you know, and I think that space has been saved. Berkeley, I think, is a part of it now. And there was a guy, oh. that was financial guy. So they've kept the studio going and, and maybe Berkeley is a part of it now. So I'm glad that, that it didn't get torn down, you know, but the, yeah. real estate, the real estate thing in New York has just gotten so crazy with, you know, people building high rises and stuff. So all of the classic studios have almost disappeared, you know. So, it's unbelievable. Wah. Yeah. Wah, wah. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so, and, and so you met, and you mentioned moving to New York in the eighties and, and when you, when you got to town, um, did you do the sort of usual stuff? Like you networked, you played with, you know, played probably places. I don't know if the 55 bar was around at that time. It probably was, but you you just you played with guys around town and you got your name out there and and uh and just man kept yeah. at it i really i really pounded the streets you know like when that john eddie thing um we were on columbia and then we got dropped it got picked up on electra and it was really interesting saw like 400k go into a record up at dreamland woodstock and they had neil young's producer produce it Anyway, long story short, that it was on Electra, and then that we got dropped from that label, and so that thing kind of fell apart. It was also sort of a a really slap in the face about the music business as far as the the band journey of it, you know. And so yeah. I yeah. started freelancing around and uh, play, was playing a lot of blues gigs. Um, this great band called the Fairlanes out in Jersey that, that a lot of great drummers had played with, and then. Uh, the whole freelance thing here in New York, like at the Bitter Inn and on Bleecker Street, all the clubs on Bleecker Street. And, uh, you know, I was play, got to play with Joan Osborne back in that day before she got signed uh, or right at the cusp before getting signed. And a lot, a lot yeah. of it was a great time. And, you know, you could kind of freelance and work four or five, six nights a week, but there was all different stuff. And it, and it was interesting, the singer-songwriter rotation thing at the Bitter Inn you know, it, I felt like I didn't necessarily come to New York to play singer songwriter music somehow, but it ended up that way because it was a survival skill. You know, that's where yeah. gigs sort of were. And, uh, you know, and it really honed in a certain sensitivity to like, uh, you know, and being around Kenny really learned this whole thing about, you know, hearing a song and and navigating like well what's the feel and how are we going to approach this and what happens on the bridge are we changing anything or we're not and you know when like the, the the colors that you have on the drum kit and and when you choose to use the right symbol or you never do and yeah there's, a, there's fills marking sections or there's no fills and it's just very you know like all the different things about approaching songs and man it was an incredible learning you know in survival way and and there was a lot of work and and stuff that you could do in New York at that time. 
and uh, people's demos. And then that's sort of what led the word of mouth and freelancing thing is what led to that audition. Um, I played at the Lone Star Roadhouse the night before GE called the bass player. I played with him at the Lone Star Roadhouse oh. about the audition, you know? So yeah. it was that whole networking thing that you're talking about. But man, I got to tell you, New York, New York is, uh, I mean, it's a hard mistress, man. <laughs> New York yeah. is a motherfucker as far as surviving as a drummer and moved out here with a small truck, little like monster truck or something. And man, it got broken into so many times. And, uh, when I lived here in the early nineties before SNL happened, I had to take my drums up a three or four, a three, three floor walk up on 14th street. And this was during the crack epidemic, you know, and man, you know, they were selling crack and, and out of my door there, the apartment. And, but they didn't want to actually, it's interesting because they don't want to cause trouble with the people that live there. Cause that brings attention from the police, you know, sure. the yeah. police couldn't do anything. Cause they had a whole thing there about, they would never have enough, drugs on them to get convicted they stored it in different places on the street you know so it was sort of this revolving door thing that never ended during the crack epidemic and you know once somebody snuck in and took a poo poo you know in the lobby of the the <laughs> thing you know and all sorts of shit that would go oh. on in new york but where i'm headed is is that freelancing in new york it I mean, you either survive and, and it makes you strong. It's, I love that about New York, that it constantly kicks your ass. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think there is something about New York drummers and the, you know, just the crazy shit of dealing with this city, you know. But yeah. man, it's, it's a motherfucker, man. New York is, I mean, you know, do, doing it and dealing with drums and having a car to drive your shit around with and then having to park alternate side street, the parking, you know, back uh, and forth. And I don't so, know how you do it. Really, I don't know how you do that. Well. I mean, then I got so lucky and fortunate with the gig that, you know, was so, but I, I guess I, I, I'm just saying that the music business is hard, you know, anywhere surviving year after year, decade after decade. And in New York, it's an inspiring place to be and to be able to walk and go see, you know, Roy Haynes play at the Blue Note or, El, or all the musicianship that's here that's so such on a high level. But Man, as a drummer, the survival thing day to day is rough. It's rough. It's know? rough. I, yeah. Well, and the reason I asked you that is because, you know, we met in 89, like we said, and, and I remember you working. I remember like, you know, we, we started a relationship at that point and, and I, I'd hear from you, you know, you might've cracked a symbol or something and, you know, can I swap this out? And, and so, so I knew like you were working and I, and I knew a lot of guys, well, a, a handful of guys that were doing a similar thing where, like you say, there were, there were enough clubs going that you could, you could work like six nights a week at a different place and a different gig. And yeah, it's hard work though. Like you say, it's, it's schlepping your gear, maybe on the subway or in a cab or, or, you know, in your own car parking and, and uh, you know, long hours and, and, and it's, yeah. it doesn't always pay off. Like, you know, like you say, it's. Yeah. It's, yeah, man. It, 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 uh, New York is it'll make you um, it'll make you strong or yeah, kill you yeah. or yeah. kill you right exactly yeah yeah so so when you um <laughs> so over time you know you you got to know a lot of people you're on the show but I, but at the same time you're 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 getting called to do like big records like Sean Colvin you know Grammy Award winning records and, and, and we mentioned Sheryl Crow and um, did those come about as a result of like a, like 
working with certain producers that like to have you come in or, or the artists themselves are just curious. I think people would like to know that too, like how some of those big like sessions have sort of evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you were touching on it about just sort of the, the word of mouth networking thing that happens with musicians, you know, and this was like pre, you know, social media and YouTube. So it was really about, yeah being present and hanging out and, and trying to meet people and, and sitting in and all that. And uh, I had met John Leventhal, the producer of the Colvin stuff uh, through GE. And I think I had, maybe I'd played on a Brecker brothers track um, that kind of the, the record did good and I'm on, on one of the tracks. And then uh, I remember he was sort of taken by the range of somebody that could do a lot of different things. And so we had worked on a Patty Larkin record, I think first that, uh, and he kind of wanted something left field, kind of, you know, Keltner influenced and percussion with the drums and cool stuff. And I love yeah. Jim, Jim, you know, huge influence and amazing musician. And, you know, that went great. And then that led sort of this, this Colvin record, which I think was 96 or 97. And, and that uh, kind of was a breakthrough thing with uh, song of the year and record of the year that yeah. it was the huge. year that, um, old dirty bastard ran out and interrupted their speech or something. It was funny, you know, uh, so, and, you know, once something like that kind of happens, you know, uh, the business sort of feeds on success, you know, in that way. And Phil Ramone was involved in the Grammys that year. And I think he saw all that and all of a sudden started working with Phil, you know, a great producer. Yeah. And, um, so the other thing that was lucky is having SNL meant I wasn't on the road in and out of town a lot. I was sort of able to stay in town and set roots into the session scene instead of, you know, maybe getting a call and being on tour and not being able to do it. And so that, that was fortunate. And at that time there was still the sort of day-to-day -day jingle uh, and, and survival sessions scene world in New York was still sort of happening. I mean, it was, a shell of what was happening when like Rick and Steve Gadd in the seventies and all that before, you know, like that was yeah. like nonstop, you know, those cats, yeah. but there was still some of that going on in the nineties with the, uh, you know, records and, and the jingle industry and the song demos and all that stuff. And um, man, you know, to show up at something. And uh, I remember there was something for Texaco and like there was Ron Carter and then there's Lou Marini, you know, and, and, oh, man. you know, the horn section from the blues brother movie and, and you know and then will lee's on bass and then it's like you know and it's like wow this is so you know ah. <laughs> <laughs> so when when i started working uh, in the studio it just just was like a dream come true you know and when um somebody shows me the list of some people the people i just like man how did i end up working with ray charles that's just so crazy you know um, but it was through Phil Ramone, you know, and like when you, these people and then how it happens and if you show up yeah. and do a good job and, you know, at least more work and stuff. So, well, yeah. And, and, but you have to have the goods to back it up and you got the goods brother. That's, you know, don't, don't forget that part of it, you know, being, you know, you, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. No, amen, yeah. Amen. And, and everybody watching knows that. And, and, uh, yeah, no, I, I I know. I think about what, I mean, what that scene was like and what it must have still been like in the 90s, like you say, when all those, there was still so much activity, like with, with sessions. And I remember Anton, you know, used to tell me that he he was, you know, doing the, the show every day for Letterman. He was still able to do a lot of sessions and, you know, stay active doing that. And, you know, there's enough work out there. And, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how, how things have changed and then, you know, uh, segued sort of into this home studio revolution, you know, and, uh, I think it's amazing that it, there is still a chance to, to make music and make records and record, you know, it's just sort of framed differently, you know, and then the budgets are completely different and, and all of that, but the actual, you know, art of, of tracking and making music and making it happen, you know, the fact that it's still possible and we can still do it, it seems like a blessing, you know, in a way. Yeah. That's yeah. great. And, and so, and I'm guessing, you know, more to what you were saying too, as far as like the, the, um, the networking and the word of mouth, like you, like you're like a regular fixture on Daryl's house. You know, I, I see you on there all the time. And, and that's, that just came through. Had you worked with those guys with Hall and Oates? Yeah. So that, that, that um, when that first started, I guess I did the, you know, first group of seasons, I forget how many years. And that was through um, T-Bone Walk, who yeah. um, was a great bass player and producer and played with Hall and Oates forever. But he goes back with the, the SNL band in the eighties. Yep. And I also known him because he was producing uh, John Eddie's record back in, you know, that second record back when we first met. Wow. So okay. anyway, yeah. there were, you know, those threads that run really deep, you know, and, uh, but man, now uh, Brian Dunn plays on uh, live from Daryl's house and he's a great drummer, great feel yeah. love yep. him, and uh, tours with Daryl and, and all of them. And, uh, Anyway, that it was interesting when that first started, nobody really knew if it would ha get any traction or sort of just die on the vine, you know, but he's really turned it into a, a great thing. And, and it was, you know, amazing to there's one episode we get to play with Todd Rundgren and then Smokey Robinson, you know, there's this. Yeah. And it was at the beginning of that, like filming people sort of doing something in a living room. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of great moments I'm proud of on that. Yeah, you got to be. You're right. I mean, it was really the that was the beginning of that whole sort of concept that we all, you know, it's kind of almost like a uh, common situation now. But that was revolutionary, really, and and it was great. I mean, it still is great. I yeah. I, yeah. I just I, I just remember like everywhere I looked, there you were. You know, you were like everywhere. Ah, that's yeah. great. That's yeah. great. Knock on wood. <laughs> so so what do you so like right right now you know you you do you have some stuff lined up this week there's another new show this saturday right yeah so we did um a first little batch and we just had a week break and now we're going to do uh, a group of three so we did one saturday we'll have two more and then there's a thanksgiving break and then i think lauren's getting the kennedy center honor uh and they filmed that the first saturday december um then we do two more uh shows leading up to christmas and then there's sort of a holiday break. And uh, uh, I think I'm going to play New Year's with Government Mule. Uh, uh, we double drum uh, with Matt Apps on that. And uh, Great. so I'm looking forward to that uh, New Year's Eve. And uh, yeah, that, that double drum, I, you know, I had a blast doing those shows with uh, Gad, you know. Yeah, yeah. I I. I didn't, I don't think I'll be able to play the video that you sent me, but I can, I can post it later so people can see it. Um, oh yeah, that's fun. Where it's sort of a little drum solo uh, back and forth. Um, um, yeah, and that you know to 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 trade drum solo type things with Steve Gadd is intimidating. <laughs> you know, I gotta tell you, but boy, it's another like you know drown or, or 
swim or die moment, you know, but man, I got to tell you, uh, it's been four or five years doing these shows with him and, um, talking about love rocks. Yeah. 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 And to, you know, sit beside a master like that and soak in, you know, his sound that he gets, uh, how soulful he is, uh, you know, uh, his feel, his touch. Uh, we were doing something with uh, Sarah Bareilles this last time, and Yola, who's this new artist, I guess, from England that, you know, has been winning a lot of awards. And it was a mashup of their versions of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, their own John ballad. And yeah. so, you know, and we're playing it together, and um, and just the way Steve, his heart, and how soulful, and how deep his pocket is, like these fills, like come down on me, you know, and the, I, I, you know, just the sound and how deep the pocket is, and just how soulful the whole thing is, and you know, it's just so inspiring, and and you know, playing things like shuffles with him, and and just anything, just being around him, and you know, and and talk about like how someone handles situations, and big ears listens, you know, a lot takes a lot in, you know really well but that's why i was asking you that sean honestly you you remind me a lot of how from what i know like steve's approach is in terms of like how he reads the room it goes in and he you know he'll he'll want to listen to the tune before he even really wants to play anything he really wants to sort of you know get a vibe for what it is and and it, your process reminds me a lot of it and and how you you know it's it's it's, it's the music is paramount that's what you're you're going for, like you said, I think you said it before we were live, but it's striving for tone. You know? <laughs> right, and, right, right. Yeah. Well, now he's such a, uh, you're right. Music is, is, it's all about making the music happen, whatever it takes. And it's interesting, like, like the two drum sets are sort of together. And I, I try to go back a little bit so that I can sort of see him without having to break my neck totally, you know, 90 degrees. And then I remember the first year, you know, when it was set up, but, after the first year, he made an adjustment where he took some of his toms down and then he put his music stand sort of on this side so that we could have eye contact and look oh, to go yeah. like very like just very giving, very supportive, very uh, whatever it's going to take to get to the best musical resolution of all all the stuff, you know, and like, you know, if two drums don't work, you know, I'll play tambourine or percussion. And then, you know, he he likes that sometimes we maybe chart out some drum fills together because they're so powerful when two, you know, when they're articulated by the same thing, you know? And so it's just been such a blast working with him and being around, you know? Well, I, I know he loves you. I know he digs you. We, we talk about you and, and it's obvious because, you know, for two drummers to play together, it's, there's gotta be that, that communication and that understanding and that respect and, and uh, you know, both in, both ways so and you know you have his respect he has your respect and 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 that's why it works i i'm not telling you anything you don't already know i know but yeah, no no i appreciate yeah. it no, you're absolutely yeah. right and i guess i just feel like it's been this real gift because as a drummer you hardly ever get to sit side by side like a a, a master drummer like him and and make music and see and feel there's so much that you know with drums you know you can hear things on records but when you see what's physically happening to make it happen and the touch and the 
the heart and the soul, soul you know. So yeah. uh, to do it five years in a row, I hope we keep doing it, you know, it just, but it feels like just a gift. Like, you know, wow. Wow. No, I, it's, you're, you're a gift. You're an inspiration, really. I, I, uh, I, I've been telling you that a long time, but, but I, I'm just, I, I appreciate your drumming even more and more now. Honestly, Sean, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I mean, I just, as I've gotten older and, and just have really sort of reexamined how I, what, what's the most important part of, you know, playing the drums is, is your whole, the way you operate is it's like, that's, that's where it's at. You know, it's, it's feel, oh, it's sound. Yeah. It's the communication. It's everything. It's, it's respecting the music, um, never putting yourself ahead of, of the music, you know, it's, it's inspiring. Oh man. Thank you. Yeah. I like it. Straight ahead, straight ahead, striving for tone. That's right. <laughs> striving for tone. I got to just say, before we go to, um, I made a note of this because I've been wanting to like text you this. Every time I watch the end of the show, the, the SNL, the, the closing theme, and it's it's this is just my my drum geekiness, but you play that so behind the beat, it kills me. I'm like at the edge of my seat listening to that, waiting for that backbeat. Yeah. And I just got to tell you that, man, I love that. You are you are my hero because that is just that is the greatest closing theme anyway and then some nights i feel like you're just you're just torturing us drummers like you know what i mean it's like right, right, right. here it yeah. comes here it comes zap mm -hmm. <laughs> right mm -hmm. oh yeah what well, leon pendarvis for um he he usually he, recently the, the new guy's been playing piano on that but for all those years uh leon set it up and he has the kind of gospel piano thing happening and uh you know, I have a little mixer where I can kind of tweak what I'm hearing. And I always put him up so that I'm laying right with his piano, you know, and where he's laying it. And, uh, you know, so a lot of that has fallen in with with him and where he sets it. And, um, yeah, that's a lot of fun. I tell you, by the time that comes around, you know, <laughs> we we are kind of out of gas you know, <laughs> from, from being being there since nine in the morning or something. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Well, that explains, it's like Kenny Jones said last week when, when they would do these sessions in the middle of the night, everybody's playing behind the beat, but that's maybe, maybe there's something to that. Yeah. It's, right, it's, right. Right. But that's, but that's some, some masterful drumming right there, man. It's just like, that's, I think any drummer who, who's worth his salt needs to like, just, just check that shit out only and just get an idea of like where it's at. That's, that's yeah. what I think anyway. <laughs> All right. Oh man, thank you. Yeah. Oh, Sean, this has been great. And I, I, you know, I, I'm going to post. There's so much we could get into, like with with your credits. I mean, they're just unbelievable. So I'm going to post those to the YouTube and to to the Facebook chat. You know, a bunch of links to your Spotify um, credits and you know everything, just so people can. I think a lot of these people watching have a pretty good idea. Anyway, there's a lot of a lot of good drummers watching today. So um, yeah. Well, man, it's such an honor. I really appreciate you, you know, having me on. And I, I, I think you're a magical cat from ever since I met at Zildjian. You know, it's so interesting about just um, how you make everybody feel so cared for, and you know, and, and your charisma level with all of that is just so great and inspiring to be around. I, I, you know, there's been times where people have 
you know, because of the SNL thing, it's like, well, do you want to play this symbol? You know, and then, and I always think in my heart, like, well, I could never, you know, because of the connection with John to Christopher and how kind he was when we first met, you know, I could never imagine sort of a, even though I know you're not a Zildjian anymore, but it's just like, I, I feel some kind of way of uh, like honoring how cool you always were. So thank you. Well, yeah. that that's, I don't know what to say that that's, that's incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah. But you have that making people feel cared about and, and everything. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Sean. Thank you. This has been great. If, if you can hang with me for one second, I'm going to, I'll end the live stream and then we'll, we'll just um, say our goodbyes in the, in the waiting room there. Hold on one second. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. Everybody. Thank you so much for watching a big hand for Sean Pelton. And, uh, like I said, I'm going to put some, uh, some links up a little bit later on with uh, a whole bunch of incredible work that Sean's done and continues to do. And I do want to shout out to my, my buddy, my old, uh, my long friend, longtime friend and bandmate, Neil Porter, who I meant to say hello to earlier. So he's watching as well. Um, so Neil, thanks for tuning in on your day off. So, <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you soon. Uh, stay tuned for the next exciting episode. And again, thanks to Sean Pelton. Right. <laughs> Thank you. All right, cool. I think we're, yep, I think we're out. Thank you so much. This was, oh, this was so great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And man, John, thank you. And um, man, keep me posted. Keep me posted. I, I thought that Charlie Watts 